This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. Ensuring a brighter, bolder future means investing in tomorrow, today. That's why Apollo is financing solutions to some of the world's most complex challenges. Learn more at Apollo.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to At Barron's. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Speaker Paul Ryan. Speaker Ryan, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Hey, nice to be with you, Andy. Thanks for having me. So we just had the Iowa primaries. We're on to New Hampshire. But this whole thing is a lock, right? I mean, it's, you know, who's going to come in second by how much? Is it too early to talk about who's going to be vice president? You know a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, first, as an extra neighbor to Iowans, it's the caucus. They hate it huh? when you say it's sorry. primary. So just, okay. just doing it. The Apologies Iowans are solid Iowans. there. Okay. Um, Hawkeyes, sorry. Yeah, yeah, so, <laughs> uh, no, just what Steve Schwartzman said. It's, uh, first of all, Totally came in as predicted. He's right. The pollsters predicted this. Um, <clears throat> I still think we've got a few more plays to, to play out here. Uh, Nikki is, in my opinion, the, the, the best chance at beating Trump in the primary. Um, she's still. Been, still. Mm-hmm. St- no, no. It's, I wouldn't say likely, but plausible is the way I would. I, would, I wouldn't say likely. I, I would say Trump's the likely nominee. But Nikki Haley, I think, has a plausible path. Ron could be a spoiler. He's, he's going to probably you know, skip New Hampshire and go to South Carolina and, and, you know, add some drama to that one. But uh, I think I would be, if, what, what they're trying to do is make this inevitability narrative that he got it. It's, it was, it was, you know, 30 point margin. It's done. It was 115,000 people in a snowstorm, you know, so you've got a lot more coming through this. Um, so I think Nikki is basically tied in the polls. Once Ron, uh, once, once uh, Christie jumped out, excuse me, once Christie jumped out, um, his 12 points basically gravitated to Nikki Haley and put her in competition with Trump in, in New Hampshire. So let's see this thing play out. I think Nikki Haley has the best shot if there's somebody else to get this. And after New Hampshire, I think it might get a little more interesting. Then you on to South Carolina, then Nevada, then Super Tuesday. The thing that I think people are not, you know, day-to-day political observers don't see is I believe that the Coke AFP endorsement is a substantive endorsement. It's not because, you know, she got endorsed by somebody. It's because that organization, extremely well-funded, very, very tech-savvy, its grassroots organization is as good as the Republican Party in some states. So she has now this, this, this pretty impressive Americans for Prosperity organization grafted onto her campaign. Um, so that's why I say, in addition to the fact that she polls pretty well in New Hampshire and obviously in South Carolina, she now has a grassroots organization that rivals anybody else's. So I think it's just too soon to say, um, and that's why I say it's plausible, not likely. What percent? I don't know, 15%, something like that. And it's just that, guess. It's just that she, she does well in New Hampshire and just sort of, but she has to win some of these. Yeah, I mean, Chris Sununu is a very popular governor, and he... You know, and, and so was Kim Reynolds in Iowa, and she helped get Ron into second place. Chris Sununu, a smaller state. Everybody kind of knows each other. I've campaigned in both these states quite a bit. Uh, I think he could help her quite a bit. I think she's got a lot of untangibles, in, in, and that changes the narrative. The inevitability narrative um, kind of fades away if, if Trump doesn't win New Hampshire. And that's what I'm saying. Okay. Well, let's go back to the 85% chance okay. Trump does get the nomination. Um, how is it that... He's not going to win the presidency. Joe Biden is not a great motivator of Democrats. 
Donald Trump is. And I, I think, first of all, I wish, I mean, Biden's really weak. So uh, I'm politically speaking, he's, he's very, very weak, but that's right now. Um, what I've experienced in, you know, being part of this stuff for a long time now is uh, Democrats typically are going to come home and they're going to run a scorched earth anti-Trump campaign. And the, the real question is in Wisconsin, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, and maybe throw in Pennsylvania, just those four to five states, what's the suburban voter going to do? Because it's the suburban voter in those five states that will determine this. And that suburban voter in those five states in 2020 said, Joe Biden, I think, is a moderate. I, I'm disgusted with Donald Trump. Um, I'm a college-educated suburban voter that typically votes Republicans. I'm voting for all the other Republicans, but I'm not going to vote for Trump. I'm voting for Biden. Biden wasn't the moderate in office. He went left, gave the progressives the keys of the car, and people think he's too old because he's so showing it. So the question is, do they then go to Trump? No. I don't, you think Trump's more popular with that voter since January 6th and all the indictments and all of these things? No. He's more solidified, solidified the base because of the indictments and other things. But the question is not whether that suburban voter goes back to the Republican ticket. It's whether they just vote or not or, or, or just write somebody in. That's the question. And so I still think at the end of the day, I, I used to make... I'm an, I don't know if you know this or not, Trump and I don't get along very well. We're not really, you know, I'm not, not, a, I'm not a pro Trump. Just not that into you. So, right. so, so I'm one of those, you know, anti Trump Republicans. But, you know, I, we used to try to make the case to try and peel MAGA and base Republicans away from Trump. Don't support this guy because he's going to cost us the election. He's, we're going to lose again with him. He cost us the House twice, he cost us the Senate twice, he's cost us the White House. He actually did lose. Um, and we make this argument, but the problem is with Biden being so weak, it looks like he can win too. So the base says, wait, he can win and we can get retribution and we can beat the left and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So it's, it's a harder argument to make for, for people like me who want anybody but Donald Trump to be our nominee. It's a much harder argument to make. But at the end of the day, I still think the Democrats come home because I think just the issues I mentioned, that the reasons they didn't vote for him in 2020 have, have, have gone in the same direction for 2024. So I think at the end of the day, he probably loses to Biden, but it's going to be really close. I think if Nikki Haley's our nominee, she'll smoke Biden. She'll, she'll, we're going to win the Senate anyway, I think, because the map is just so good for us. But, but the House will be precarious. Um, and I think I think Trump probably still ends up losing. If he wins, you know, it's going to be it's going to be close. All right. As I said, you ran for vice president with Mitt Romney in 2012. Who would Trump pick for his running mate? Oh, gosh, it, it, I, I used to think Nikki Haley, but no longer. No, but I think he'll probably pick a woman. I think I think he would do that. Um, you know, he'd probably look at Elise Stefanik, Christy Nome. You know, um, right. Uh, Carrie Lake's running for the Senate, so he can't pick her. Um, so probably probably one of the one of the women leaders in our party who are very pro-Trump. Speaker Ryan, let me ask you, what happened to the Republican Party, though, when it comes to... How much time? When it comes to... Hear me out. When it comes to being the party for business. I mean, it's become a populist party. Yeah. And, and it used to be... You heard Steve Schwarzman saying, well, you know, I'm undecided. I mean, before, like, it's a slam dunk. Yeah, Mitt Romney. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, I've, you know, I've known Steve a long time. Um, Kane, you know, just... Yeah, sure. Uh, we became, 
not just a populist party. We be, we've become not the whole party, right? Granted, there I'm a classical liberal conservative. Um, so we became a party that is populist, but more important to the to the point, we became a, a populism not tethered to any set of principles or policies. It's a populism that is tethered to basically a cult of personality and a cultural war. So that's that's to me pretty thin gruel, mm-hmm. and and that is therefore um, a really hard party to lead um, based on policy and vision and problem solving, and it's based on more cultural war score settling and a cult of personality. The good thing for our party in this parade of horribles I just described is if we can get back to a fusion of, you know, real conservatism anchored in core principles, you know, I, as a conser- what I mean when I say I'm a conservative, I want to conserve those really important principles and policies that have, that have made our country a great country. I want to preserve liberty and freedom and free enterprise and self-determination, you know, private property rights, our constitution. Those are great things that are worth conserving, and that's why I'm a conservative of what people call the classical liberal variant. If you're just untethered to these things and it's for owning the libs and being popular for the sake of being popular with no end in sight, that, that doesn't get you very far. But it's easier for our party to rebuild itself after this populist moment comes and goes. Most of it's tied to a guy, right, who's going to either be, a, you know, be there for the next four years or the next one year. Um, I think it's better than the left because the left has more, in my opinion, granted I'm a, I'm a conservative Republican, they have an ideological problem. They're tied to the progressive left. And the country doesn't want that either. I mean, the, I think elections have shown this. So it's harder to untether yourself to, to a stuck-in-the-rut ideology that is out of sync than it is for a momentary flirtation with, I would call it, unprincipled populism. Mm-hmm. So I think we'll get through this moment and it will hopefully be some kind of a fusion of the kind of conservatism that I just described um, with the fusion of sort of the forgotten man populism that, that, that is what Trump sort of espouses. I mean, there's dysfunction, too, though, on both sides, but maybe in particular on the Republican side when it comes to the House well, I mean, and the Speaker no, situation. He's got no margin. I mean, right. Mike, Mike's got a— What do you think about Mike Johnson? Mike Johnson's a smart man, he's a decent man, and he's got a good temperament, which matters a lot, frankly, in a job like that. Um, the problem Mike has is he's got basically a one-vote margin. Um, I think I think Bill Johnson's heading to Youngstown State in like about a month. But that's a congressman who's taking a job as you know head of a local college. Um, Kevin left, um, and Steve is getting a stem cell transplant right now, and that means he can't be in, he can't go to Congress for like two to three months. So the legislating that's going to happen in this session is basically the next quarter, maybe two maybe two quarters. So there's no margin. There's no majority there. It's basically a 218-seat majority. So Mike Johnson, no matter how good he is, he has no majority to play with. And he's got nihilists in his ranks who aren't – they're there for the sake of fighting. Fighting for the sake of fighting, not fighting for something or not fighting to win something, but just fighting for the sake of fighting. And both sides have that. Usually you get a little bit of a vote cushion like I had to get through all of that, and Mike just doesn't have that. Yeah, well, what's going to stop this polarization I mean, <laughs> um, maybe not just in the United States, but maybe everywhere. Around yeah, the world. it's a it's really damn good question. Uh, I think, in the way I look at it, is uh, if you ask me the biggest problem in America, you'd probably think I'd say like the debt or, or something That's like you, that. You like that? Stuff. That's usually what people think. I, I think right. it's moral relativism, and I think it's, relativism. Yeah, I think it's moral relativism, which has just been amplified with with digitization. 
And so it's like your truth and your truth and his truth and their truth. They're all equal. They're all the same. There's no fixed truth. It's my truth, not the truth. If we go down this, these rabbit holes in society, we're just going to tear each other apart. If there's no common you know, reference point for us to operate ourselves on and our society on, we're just going gonna, gonna to polarize ourselves so badly in these sort of digital cul-de-sacs that we operate in and that just the algo feeds us our biases so that we just play identity politics. The kissing cousin to moral relativism is identity politics. And, and as we used to, guys like me used to think, oh, that's a thing from the left. That's Solowinsky, you know, rules for radicals. That's something they play on the left. The right plays it now. So, you know, the right has moral, has, has, has identity politics as well. So everybody's playing identity politics, which is speaking to people as if in you're, some, you're in some group or tribe. And, and the key is that in this zero-sum game world we're in, your group or tribe beats the other one. And it is a zero-sum game. And that is the kind of populism we have right now. We have zero-sum game politics and zero-sum game populism. And, and that is honestly not how life works. That's not how economies work. There are positive-sum games. There are win-win situations. There are win-win relationships. In Congress, both sides can actually win. That's what democracies do. They negotiate, they compromise, they advance their priorities, and they find the Venn diagram where the Democrats and the Republicans, you know, this works, win-win, you know, positive sum. But that is not the kind of politics that relativistic, you know, identity politics plays. So that's the rut we're in. What's the answer out of that? I mean, that's, a, I don't know. I mean, I what a taught a class at Notre Dame about this. Um, I think it's a revival of civil society. Put the damn phone down, you know, stop doing the hits and clicks and the eyeballs and go spend time in your community with people, uh, especially ones who aren't like you, who don't think like you, who don't look like you, and just get to know people. Civil society, revitalize civil society. I honestly think that that's the best antidote to this, but more regulation, more top-down, you know, Hegelian, you know, central planners is not the answer. So you don't think tech companies need to be regulated more? I mean, Europe, obviously, I mean, GDPR here, and we don't have that in the United States, a little bit in California, yeah, but not so much anywhere else, and we have a circus. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm more of a light regulatory touch guy. I'm not, there are conservatives who agree with, you know, let's just regulate the heck out of these guys. I just right. be careful what you ask for, I think. Um, that's, a, that's a conversation of Web 2 versus Web 3, right. which, you know, I think is an interesting conversation, and there's a regulatory moment to have there. But, but no, if you're asking me if the cure for our cultural problems is we regulate Google and Metamore, no, that's not going to fix our problems. Right, well. All right, so that's kind of a segue to AI, which I want to ask you about. And you're talking about Web 2, Web 3. Do you have some thoughts about regulating AI, though? Yeah, I mean, I'm in more of the accelerationist camp, mm -hmm. uh, which is let's go. Uh, I would rather have the free world with our principles, um, meaning, meaning Silicon Valley, um, stay, keep the edge and keep the advantage so that the, the, the tyrants of the world don't. Um, so I see it a bit of a race, and I think it's important that free societies uh, set the tone and temper of this. So if we slow ourselves down and shoot ourselves in the foot, then the tyrannies will, will take over, uh, take this. So I think it's important. Yeah, you know, the, the Andreessen's, you know, con construct is sort of the Baptists and the bootleggers. You guys know what I mean when I say that? You're talking about Mark Andreessen. Yeah, yeah. 
So you're friends with Mark Andreessen. It He's seemed from unlikely. We're, we all know each other. You're so. from Wisconsin, right? It seemed yeah. unlikely to me that, you, well, okay. So you guys know each other from Wisconsin? Everyone in Wisconsin knows each yeah, other? Yeah, yeah, we all know each other. I'm, I'm slightly exaggerating <laughs> here. Um, but it, it, it is a state where people are friendly with one another. Um, no, but the Baptist of Bootleggers is basically the old construct, which is, you know, the, 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 the true believers who think this is this a doomsday machine, robots are going to come get us. Um, versus the bootleggers who want it to be outlawed so that they can sell the alcohol to everybody. I think what you have to watch out for are sort of, this is back to the, to the Web 2 reference you made, um, hyperscales basically trying to set up a competitive mode around them so that they can no longer be disrupted. And so what we have to make sure that we guard against is setting up a regulatory system that makes it really hard for disruption to occur, that makes it really hard you know, it basically gives the keys of the castle to the king so he can pull the drawbridge up behind him and, and let nobody else in. We want to have that creative destruction. We want to have that disruption. And, and how you regulate will really determine whether you get this right or wrong. And as far as the, um, the downside cases, uh, whether it's, I, that, I, think, I think you just have to have good, smart AI stay ahead of this stuff. And so is there room for regulation to make sure you can protect against the downside case? Of course there is. Um, but you have to be really careful how you do that, in my opinion. This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. As one of the world's largest alternative asset managers, Apollo is generating investment-grade credit, providing greater access to more resilient and diverse pools of capital, and helping to fill gaps in America's financial ecosystem. Learn more at Apollo.com slash private credit. I mean, you said you were concerned a little bit about continuing to allow the superscalers to amass even more power, control over our society. Well, I when think it comes to AI. Yeah, I think it's I think it's important that we 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 make sure that there's a good ecosystem of disruption that can occur. So um, that so the the startups can exactly go after the yeah, incumbents. That's right. That's right. That's right. right. Okay. Fair enough. Um, I want to ask you about your thinking on the economic outlook and your take on the job that the Federal Reserve has done? I, I actually, I think Jay's done a pretty damn good job. Uh, I think it was late. Uh, Jay Powell, I'm sorry. Jay's a friend. You're, and, and using, a, you're on a first name basis. Yeah, no, I'm, 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 that's good. I was in Congress. I right. kinda, everybody yeah. kind of knows each other. Um, I think he's done a good job. He was late on inflation. They thought it was transitory for too long. Um, there may have been some confirmation, you know, politics in there. Um, but they got on it. Um, and I think they've, they actually should be rewarded for, or like Steve just did, they should be congratulated for pretty much getting us to a, what looks like a pretty good soft landing. I'm in the higher for longer camp, mm -hmm. um, regardless of, Steve has really access to interesting data, but core inflation still has a three handle on it. Um, if you do the last six months, it looks better than the, than the 12 month window. But what's most important for the Fed is credibility. And, and, and Jay does not want to go out in history like an Arthur Burns. He wants to go out in history like a Paul Volcker. And the Fed's credibility is everything. And so it's better that they stay higher for longer to make sure that they hit their target than to, you know, declare victory prematurely. We're not in a recession and, and start cutting rates too soon and then realize they didn't finish the job and then have to go back and put toothpaste back in the tube. That would be a, a blow to credibility. And the great thing, and this is why they deserve credit, is you know our job, our labor market's pretty damn good. Right. Our unemployment rate's pretty stellar. And 
and the forecasts, and you talk to people around here, are that the economy's doing pretty well. We're going to have a deceleration, a slowdown, but nobody seems to see a recession within sight, and that means they have wiggle room to get it right and to preserve their credibility. So I would, I would not be in the six. I think the Fed. I think the market's too bullish on rate cuts. Six rate cuts this year is what people are predicting. I just don't see that happening. I can't imagine that the Fed would do that. Final question for me, um, and maybe it's an obvious one, maybe to some people out there. Why don't you run for president? <laughs> I just, just demonstrated, well, I just demonstrated why not. I'm, I'm not. I'm an anti-Trump guy. I, don't, I, don't, I make the he's not going to get elected, but I also don't think he's, he's fit for office. So that right there takes 40% off the table for me. So a guy like me saying what I say, you can't get elected, but, but it's, it's more important for me to be who I am than that. Hmm. And this just sort of tells you the pickle my party's in, which is fear is so palpable. And, and the fear of, of not being highly rated on the fealty scale and therefore being called a rhino, which used to be a moderate conservative measurement, it's a fealty measurement now. That is why I'm, I mean, I, there's a lot of other reasons why I would, I'm not running for president, but that's why I'm not viable. Speaker Paul Ryan, thank you so much. Please join me in thanking the speaker. The production team for At Barron's is Elias Miladou, Rebecca Bisdale, Kinga Rojak, Joe Lusby, and Laura Salaberry. The executive producers are Kristen Bellstrom and Melissa Haggerty. We'll be back with a new episode next week. This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. By providing companies with access to flexible financing solutions and partnering with management teams, Apollo is there every step of the way to drive positive outcomes for businesses and power economic growth. Learn more at Apollo.com.